Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We are Spark Partners. We help you to grow your company by understanding trends, understanding your customers, and understanding what the competition is doing. A lot of what we talk about has to do with uh, the behaviors of, of the market and ultimately the behaviors as you as a leader in being able to make decisions that guide your company to uh, success. And uh, I think one of the things that we do quite often is we, in our podcast, is we talk about current events, sort of what's happening in the world. And this is important for you as a listener and a viewer to understand because you're making decisions day in, day out about your business. And there was a piece of news that came out today about a very large bank that is Wells Fargo changing the way they do business in one of their largest sectors, which is the mortgage business. Now, Adam and I, we've talked about this, Adam, many times on in the, the mortgage side and all that. But why do you think a giant like Wells Fargo, uh, an embattled giant, if you think about uh, that big fee they got slapped, uh, slapped on, uh, what, two, three months ago, why would they do that? What do you, what's your thoughts on that? Well, again, um, <laughs> Wells Fargo uh, was fined. Uh, I remember, I think it was about seven, eight years ago, I was at a National Association of Corporate Directors conventions, was sitting next to a guy who was literally a member of the Wells Fargo board. It's not a joke. And while we're there, the announcer says that the news had just come through that the SEC had indicted the chairman of the board of Wells Fargo while we were there. Uh, it was it was a really interesting moment because you could sort of see this guy turn gray, uh, realizing then, and it, he, then he sort of leans over to me and he says, I'm supposed to speak on the next panel. What do you think I ought to do? <laughs> I looked at him and I said, I think if I was you, I would leave. Yeah. <laughs> the the company the company Wells Fargo effectively what happened was they they got so greedy that they uh, pushed all of their employees to do things to drive revenues and we love revenues we love going after revenues that's a good thing to do but in their case as a big organization they pushed their employees so hard that the employees started to break the law they started to fake accounts and they started to do all kinds of bad things to, to make more revenue. And when the Great Recession hit in 2008, they, uh, between 08 and 010, 08 and 10, I'm sorry, they uh, actually um, really went hard after their mortgagees and they you know, pushed them to make payments and then they filed um, a against them to create bankruptcies among the uh, their, their mortgagees. And, and they really treated people very, very badly, uh, all in the effort of trying to maintain their revenues and yeah. importantly maintain their profits. So what's been chasing them ever since then has been a, are you going to you know act like a decent company that's got some restraint in your operating procedures? Then consistently what's happened is they've said yes, but not done much about it. And finally, what we're seeing is, you know, and again, another effort on their part to try to say, hey, we can run a, a moralistic, uh, ethical uh, and legal company uh, with, and we don't need to be fined anymore from the SEC or the banking regulators. And I think they were pushed into it. And I find that really unfortunate because if we look around to what's going on with the trends in society, you know, people are paying attention. And, you know, you've got superheroes now in the banking industry like Jamie Dimon. You know, everybody wants to know what Jamie Dimon has to say, J.P. Morgan Chase. And, and that's because you have these leaders in the industry that are saying, hey, we're going to try to be ethical. We're going to try to do what we can to help the economy grow. And people who, who you know have a distrust of bankers because of everything that's happened since the Great Recession, 
they start saying, you know, I'm going to do business where I can with the bankers that I feel like I can trust better. And Wells Fargo is trying to get there, yeah. but it seems like they just, they can't seem to get over themselves in the process. There's just too many people on the board and too many people in senior leadership positions that are from the boomer generation who um, just keep saying that the ends justify the means. And the question will be, will they ever get the means right in that, unless they change that thinking and will they, or can they change that thinking? Yeah. So I, I had a Wells Fargo account that I started in high school and I had that thing through college. I had that thing through my, my early career. And then when I went to start my business in 2011 timeframe, 10, 11 timeframe, naturally I went to Wells Fargo and uh, I grew that, that company very quickly. And within three or four years, we were, you know, getting close to the three, three million mark. And then we crossed it and all that. And, and ultimately I remember going to a, uh, one of their, their corporate bankers and saying, Hey, listen, I'd like a line of credit. Uh, we're going to start doing business with a, a big defense contractor and we're going to have to be floating lots of equipment. And he was, he was fantastic. No problem. You know, come on in. And I went in there to talk with him. And the first thing he asked me is, well, let me know what, what kind of revenues do you, uh, you push through your company? And I said, well, we're probably going to be 3 million this year. And I remember his reaction was, ooh, uh, sorry, can't help you there. You're, uh, we, only, we only support companies that are above 5 million in revenue. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what kind of bank is this? And that was the beginning of the end for me. And, and it was a few other things that happened that ultimately I changed banks after 20 some odd years. Yeah, and I think too often uh, be, there are these customers that you just, if you could just not drive them away, right? And and that gets back to knowing your customer and knowing what your customers need and what your customers want. And the companies that are very successful say, hey, I do business out there and this is my value proposition. And then they build their organization around that to effectively meet their customer needs. What we're seeing in the case of a lot of banks and the reason they so many banks have been under attack and the regulators have been after them is that they say, well, this is the way I run a bank. And without thinking about their customers, they say, well, I'm running a bank this way. So, oh, oh, oh so Manny Tran has been a customer for 20 years and he's had checking accounts and other accounts and he's had loans and mortgages. Oh, but you know what? We don't really want, we don't service Manny. We're here to make loans. We're here to take deposits and make loans. And this is the way we do business and like it or leave it. You know, Bank yeah. of America, in a very, very real way, is like that. They took over Merrill Lynch. They're very much stuck in that way. In fact, a lot of the big banks are, which is why you, we still see some of these smaller banks out there that you drive down the street, you know, and there's a bank on the corner, and it's more of a local bank. And that's because the big guys have, got, have put the value delivery system ahead of the value proposition. And they're saying, hey, this is what we do, like it or leave it. That's the way we're going to operate. And that creates an opportunity for the entrepreneur, for the smaller company to come in and say, I'm going to get to know Manny Turan or Adam Hartung. What are your, what's your business like? What are your yeah. needs? Help me out with that. And if you want to grow your business, you know what? I, I'm not going to say that I've got an absolute threshold of revenue. I'm going to say I'm going to work with you based upon what I think we can make and, and not jeopardize our position. You know, we have to have reserves in our bank. The reserves amount vary based upon the risk of the loans we make. Let's categorize things effectively. Let's be honest with each other. And let's see if I can help you grow your business. And that just gets back to that fundamental notion. Do you know your value proposition and have you built your value delivery system to help your customers? Or are you so tied up inside your value delivery system that you aren't paying any attention to your customers or not paying enough attention to your customers and just trying to get out there and promote what they got? In Wells Fargo, it was all about you're going to go out there and get more accounts, period. 
And so people started making up accounts. Mm -hmm. We're going to go out there and you're going to issue more mortgages. So they did. And they made bad mortgages to people who couldn't afford them, you know, in the, in the Great Recession, where they were flipping houses and they made bad mortgages because it looked good on paper, especially when you initially issued the mortgage. Then whenever some of these people who had gone through their second, third or fourth mortgage with um, uh, with Wells Fargo, get a situation, they're in trouble. And kind of like, okay, now we need to work this thing out. Their reaction was, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to pull the plug because now we're going to get the insurance to pay off on that mortgage because we've got yeah. mortgage insurance backing it. So if we drop the hammer on you and ruin your credit, maybe even force you into personal bankruptcy, we can use the insurance to pay us back. And it's better for us, better for our, uh, our, our way of doing business, better for our profitability. Yeah, All of well, that operating a value delivery system and not thinking about the customer. Yeah. What's remarkable is uh, all these banks should be shaking in their boots to some degree. The nature of banking is changing. You know, the, the, the prevalence of Venmo and Zelle and all these other, these cash apps that allow me to send you, Adam, pull out my phone and send you a hundred bucks in, in an instant. And the uh, banks that you can do business with, as you talked about in previous podcasts, Manny, Banks that are banks that you only know because of the internet or because of your phone and your app. They don't have a building on the corner, right? But that doesn't keep you from making deposits. doesn't keep you from making loans. Heck, discover that credit card that we've known for years and years. It was originally part of Sears. They launched it as a consumer credit device to help people buy stoves and pants and everything in a Sears store. That now, that business is now 60 some years old. And, but you can make deposits there. You can get certificates of deposits there and you can get loans through them. Right. And they don't have there's no Discover Bank down on the corner. They're just an example, right. one of the oldest and biggest at it. But but yeah, you're right. The face of banking is changing. And the people that are saying, hey, I got this branch on the corner and I'm going to have my nose up in the air and I'm going to be careful who my customers are. Right. Uh, you know, they're not thinking about their customer. And anytime you do that, you're going to be at risk. You might get slapped by the regulator. And what's worse is your customers walk away. You lose the Manny Turan. And once Manny's gone, he's not likely to come back. Yeah, so I bank with a local bank now called uh, Vantage West. It's a credit union, actually. And I've moved the majority of my accounts there. Not all of them, but uh, the majority because of what you said. I go in there. I know the people. They know me. They're able to to work with me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm doing, uh, I don't know, probably I go there once a week, maybe once every two weeks to, to work on something. And they're there. And they service me and they, they work on what I need. Um, and I got rid of all my, my big accounts. I don't have a Chase account anymore. I don't have Wells Fargo. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple other banks, but otherwise that's it. And it kind of brings me to another interesting topic that, that, uh, was, there was some news today or a few days ago about uh, Rolls Royce. Now Rolls Royce, of course, is the, you know, the vanguard of, of this luxury brand, not necessarily a sports car, but it kind of speaks to, uh, you know, each one of these cars is 500,000 plus. Well, last year, uh, actually in 2021, they crossed 6,000 vehicles a year. Now these are all hand built. These are all, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a Rolls Royce, but it, they're ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's opulence to the, the highest degree. And this year they're going to have a record year. So it kind of begs the question, how are these, who's affording these things? Aren't we going into, into a recession? Shouldn't these <laughs> things be, uh, shouldn't Rolls Royce be declining? What are your well, thoughts, that- Adam? That's, of course, the classic economics approach, the way of thinking about it. You know, that we are what in economics they call the rational man. That's the, the really the term for it. And the rational man will make rational economic decisions. So he'll get the, the most that he can for the least amount of cost. 
And so that's all economics was based on that for the longest time. But what we've realized in the last 30 years is that when you think about the rational man, you can't just look at numbers, dollars and cents. And uh, so the big winner in this, of course, has been LVMH. Uh, they own Yves Saint Laurent and they own a, you know, a, a Prada and a bunch of these really high end brands that you might have heard about. And the chairman of LVMH, when he put this company together, started it 35 years ago. I would never have dreamed this. It, seriously, and I wouldn't have thought it would work. But what he realized was that if people have some money and they have a choice, they can have a choice between having, let's say, um, 10 shirts that they buy or 10 suits. They could get 10 suits if they're men or, or 10 um, work outfits or 10 uh, bags if they're a woman. And they can get these 10 bags for, for $100 a piece. Or the other option is we could say, here's a bag, and this bag is a $1,000 bag. But the, the people that carry the $1,000 bag or that wear the $1,000 suit, they're special. And they're special for a variety of reasons. We create images of them. We show them in, in, in work. We show them uh, you know, enjoying themselves. And we create a brand image around that. And we put the project. In. And we don't necessarily spend a whole lot of time talking about the bag being a better bag or the suit being a better suit. You know, maybe the fabric's a little bit better. Cost-wise, it maybe costs twice as much, but that means that the $100 bag, which costs $10 to make, costs Prada $20 to make, but they're selling it for 1000 And what he keyed in on was that part of the rational man is their image of themselves, yeah. right? And so you have this situation where somebody could say, hey, you know, do I want the most rational car that I could buy out there today is, is a Honda Civic or something like that. You know? And this car costs me, uh, uh, maybe it's a Kia and, and I could get a Kia or a Galaxy and this car might cost me twenty-five dollars or $35,000. It's very functional, very capable, does everything I want. But what does it say about me as a person, right? On the other hand, I could go get a car that's a little bit better and the manufacturing costs a little bit more, but it's got a Mercedes-Benz logo on it, right? And that Mercedes-Benz, yeah. when I'm driving it, people go, oh, look, that fellow's driving a Mercedes-Benz. And therefore, they look at me differently. So the rational man actually has more to them than dollars and cents. The rational man has, how do people perceive me? What, when I walk in the door in this suit and they recognize it as a, as a special suit from a special manufacturer, will they treat me differently? You know? And do I treat myself differently? And right. that's where the luxury goods came in. And that's where LVMH has stayed on top of things. And so what you see, we see happen is this, what economists would say in a recession, you should be buying less luxury goods, you know, buy less of the more expensive vegetables and buy more of the green beans and the potatoes and the cheaper vegetables. But what we see is people don't react that way. They start saying, you know what, when I have less to spend, I'm going to spend it more on things that, that fit me as a person. So yeah. if I'm only, if I could, if I'm only going to buy one bag or one suit or one special shirt or one of something this year, I want to go get the one that I think is the best. And the best doesn't necessarily mean cost the most to manufacture. It means that it's the one that most fits me. And right. if I see myself as fitting the prototype of a product customer or the prototype of any of these other brands, then that's what I'll buy. And so what you see is in a recession, somebody that says, you know, I've had a jet. And maybe don't have a jet anymore, or I'm, I'm emerging, I'm doing reasonably well in this recession. Now is a good time for me to show that I am doing well. I will go buy a Rolls Royce. Now, it is one of the most uneconomical purchases imaginable, 
about five, six years ago, I looked into buying a Rolls Royce and I wasn't going to buy a new one. I have the Mercedes Benz. I was happy enough with the car, but I had this thought I would take my Mercedes in and I would exchange it in for a Rolls Royce. So I was going to have to give in my car and I was going to have to add a couple hundred thousand dollars to that in order to upgrade to the Rolls Royce. And it's a beautiful car, luxury car. I liked everything about it. And, and then I was thinking about it and I got started talking to a fellow that I knew quite a bit about cars. And he said, Adam, you're not a car collector. You're just going to buy the car and drive it. I said, that's right. And he says, there's a rule of thumb. You will spend 10% of the cost of a car on maintenance every year. He says, so if you buy that Rolls Royce figure, it's going to be worth $300,000. You have to expect to spend $30,000 a year on maintenance. Yeah. Because if you have to buy a new starter, it's probably $2,000. Whereas a starter for your Mercedes is $1,000 and a starter for a Honda Civic is maybe $200. And he said, so you got to keep that in mind. And that, that's when it struck me that, you know, I probably didn't fit me as a person to go spend yeah. that much money to get a Rolls Royce. Um, but people will do that. They'll sit there and say, hey, if I'm driving down the road in a Rolls Royce and there's a recession going on, people are going to think that I'm better than the recession. I've done better than the recession. I've been able to keep my head above water and do really well. And it'll, it, it helps me how I feel about myself and it'll, it'll help how create the impression for others that I want them to have about me. And so that's changed the way we think about economics now. We realize that people, consumers, customers are not all alike. And customers segment themselves and we have to really understand what their needs are. And the needs aren't just down to, I need some food today. Um, you know, I need a shirt to put on. It, it, their needs become psychographic. They, they start to include the values that people have. And it includes their backgrounds and how they want to project themselves. And those yeah. are the trends that I think we often, too often don't pay attention to when we look at our value proposition. Are we serving all of our customers' needs? Or are we just trying to serve up you know, the basics. Are we trying to give them the meat and potatoes and the green beans? Or are we sitting there saying, hey, as a business, as a customer, what are all your needs? You know, how do I take care of all of your needs? And and then if I can service those, now what's happening is I'm going to be, I'm going to have a much more loyal customer that will come yeah. back again and again. So, Adam, have you heard of a company called Yeezy? No, I don't think I'm familiar with that one, Manny. So Yeezy is a, is a uh, it's a shoe company. It's a collaboration between uh, Kanye West and uh, Adidas. Um, and these shoes are, I think they've been in, in um, production for about seven years. And it just goes to show that even though the they have these big giant brands, that these uh, luxury brands, the new ones are coming into the market all the time. You know, these shoes, they start at $200 for the, the most basic ones. And they actually go upwards even over a thousand for some of the the limited edition versions and so forth. So I just think it's interesting that you know people are starting luxury brands even in the face of uh, insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable uh, competition. And it goes back to like we were saying, it has to do with what how it makes them feel. It's not necessarily the functionality of wearing something on your feet so you don't hurt when you walk. But it, it's about the it's about how you make how it makes you feel. Yeah, when I was a youth, the the sneakers were Keds, K E D S, and then I remember it came along with Converse. And so when you got older and you were going to play ball, play basketball typically, and in in junior high or high school, then you you upgraded to these Converse All Stars, and that was like the shoe. And and actually, people in college like. Uh, 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 Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and uh, Wilt Chamberlain and the pros wore these these um, 
the Converse All-Stars. And if you look back now, I don't know if CADs even exist anymore, but I'm sure they're not a, a high-end brand. Converse All-Stars are primarily worn by women these days, and it's kind of a, a, a hip-hop type of a brand a little bit, you know, but it's on the low end of the scale. So like you said, nobody's paying a lot of money for those. So remember when Adidas came out and Adidas shoes had the three stripes on the side? And everybody yeah. was really excited about that. Adidas has a different brand. And then there's Puma that came along behind that. Now you're talking about this brand. What it goes to show and what I think our, our listeners need to keep in mind is that customers have different needs. And we tend to want to look at customers as everybody is alike. Like I service, I don't know, the residential market or I service you know, the food service business or, or I'm in business, you know, the restaurant business. And we really have to get away from all those sort of generic statements and start saying, you know, how do how do you segment your market? And, how, and do you understand the needs of these different segments? Because your value proposition probably doesn't serve everybody. It will only serve a segment, and you need to know the segment you're serving. Now, you can have, if you can say, well, I started off helping out people with this, and then it's segmented, and you can modify. So you have one big value proposition, but you can have specific value propositions for segments inside of that. Then if you really grow big, that's going to be required. I was recently asked about, for example, um, you know, what's happening in the world where we have customers that are, you know, going off in socioeconomic directions, you know, like you got what we'll call a hard right and you've got what we'll call yeah. the hard left and you've got, uh, you know, different people behaving in different ways and, and it's sort of tearing society apart. And oh my gosh, what is the business leader supposed to do? And it made me think about Chapek, you know, the guy that we've talked about Disney with Chapek and Iger yeah, and everything. We talked about him in the past, yeah. And so Chapek is running Disney Corporation and um, you know, we'll get into the pandemic and the, um, the, the Orlando facility gets closed down and then they're getting reopened again. And then Florida passes some laws. And at the state level, there's people who think these laws are very much anti the LGBTQ community. And so then the employees of, of Disney start saying, Hey, you know, uh, we, we, you know, we've got employees that are LGBTQ and we don't like this laws being passed. And, and what should we do? And, and the, and Chapek, the CEO is being silent. He's not saying anything. He just kind of lets it go. And so then after some time, he feels like, oh, I'm pressured. I got to do something. And he makes a statement. And when he makes a statement, then the employees go, oh, what you said really wasn't sufficient. And it was way too late. And meanwhile, the governor of Florida jumps up and says, wait a minute. That sounds like, uh, you know, you're, you're taking a position there. And, you know, you got big tax breaks from us. And so if you're going to take some of those positions head of, of Disney, then we may want to pull your tax breaks back. And I look at that whole thing, and, and what it reminds me of is that what was not happening effectively in Disney was understanding the evolution of the customer. So mm -hmm. if you wound back all the way to 1963, and you know, I'm sitting in front of my black and white TV watching Disney in those days, and maybe by 68, we got a color television, right? But that's the family. We thought of the family as one thing. It was just one family. And to be honest, it was a white family, lower middle class to middle class with a couple of kids eating TV dinners in front of the television, you know, you know, white Anglo-Saxon, maybe Catholic. But there wasn't much, you know, trying to break that into segments. Well, now today you've got people who are very, very, very tied to what we might call yeah. a traditional family. And then you've got people who are very, very tied to what we might call an alternative family lifestyle. And then you've got everything in between that gets into talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the religion and talks about race and talks about – and what Disney can't be anymore is Mickey Mouse isn't the same thing to everybody, right? People look at right. the whole experience of having a family experience through their eyes. And so what Disney, what JPEG failed to do was when he was before he was CEO, he should have sat down and said, okay, how does Disney appeal to the 
traditional family, whatever that means, you know, and have a definition for it, develop it internally, understand it, know what you're trying to do. And then what's the alternative family? And what are the variations of each of those? And then how, what does our brand mean to them? And how do we relate to them? And he should have had that like on the shelf, known it, been part of his mind as CEO, been part of the leadership team and part of the culture. So that then whenever issues start to develop around, well, how are we going to treat uh, LGBTQ community members when they go to a theme park? How are we going to deal with interactions between different um, views of the family in our theme parks? And you can map that all out so that you know what you're doing. And when you talk, you talk in a way that reflects what your brand should stand for. Extend right. what your value proposition is to those people. And Chapek failed at that. And part of the reason he ended up, you know, getting pulled out of the job and Iger coming back and replacing him. Because as leaders, we, we need to know what our customers are looking for. What is the value proposition? And then know the impact of what we say. Mm -hmm. right? Know that, okay, if I want to take this position, this will be the impact with this segment of customers. If I take that position, that's the impact with that segment of customers. Now, I'm not saying that as a leader, you're devoid of morals or spirituality or your own point of view. And you might say, well, you know, my customers are one way, but this is my point of view. That I'm not telling people they can't do that, but I'm saying you can assess the impact. You yeah. can say, oh, okay, I've studied my customer base. I've seen how the segments are behaving. I've got some scenarios around them. And you know what? I'm going to take this position, and this will be the positive, and this will be the negative. This is what we're going yeah, to well, and this is what will be the blowback. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about bias in the past. And, you know, when you make uh, decisions as, as a leader in isolation, you, you run the risk of isolating your customers, like, yes. like we just talked about. If you build yes. a, a a resource around you that is that is of all the different shapes and colors of your customer base, even if they don't always or you don't always agree with them, it's going to suit you more than not. I mean, it's a painful thing to have the courage to do that, but that's kind of what courage means: is you know it's painful and you do it anyway. I mean, people, the truth is, is that Protestants, Catholics, Jewish people, and people that follow the Islamic faith—they all like going to Disneyland. They really do. And yeah. the reality is, is that white people and brown people and black people and people from Asia and people from all over the world of all different colors, they like going to Disneyland. And, 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 and Mickey Mouse does have a representation to all of them. But the point is that representation is I loved as it is, is somewhat different among each of those people. And as leaders, we have to know that when we become successful, we need to really understand that in some depth. What is our value proposition to them? Mm -hmm. What does it represent? When you have a gay couple or a lesbian couple with their children at the theme park meeting Mickey Mouse, they have a different frame of reference from somebody that's a traditional family with a husband and wife with their children at the theme park, right? And so you, you need to know those sorts of things about your customers. How do they segment? How are they different? And when I'm, when I, how do I appeal to them? What's their value proposition? Because you won't get your value delivery system right. You won't get your theme park right. You won't get Mickey mm -hmm. Mouse right unless you understand the customer and how the customer is approaching them. You have to build the value delivery system to deliver the value, the happiness that Walt Disney wants to give. You have to build that into your value delivery system for all the segments you're going to appeal to. Don't just think you can have one amorphous value delivery system that will appeal amorphously through one value proposition to everyone. That is a mistake that will kill you. 
And LVMH proved that. And whatever thing you're saying about these um, these higher end brands and the luxury goods is that hey, it defies what economists told us should happen. But the reality is, is that really good business leaders have been able to segment out and understand people's needs, wants, and desires, and then put together the value proposition that appeals to them. Very well said, Adam. That uh, I think culminates a lot of things in today's discussion that uh, seemingly went into very disparate directions from Wells Fargo to luxury brands to the the social impact of, of leaders' decisions. And uh, this is why I think this this podcast is so valuable to the people that we serve. Uh, I've gotten lots of feedback about how there's just a different sensibility when you when you start to absorb this and you make it part of your your mental vernacular to just take that pause and realize, okay, you know, I'm I'm wrestling with a night with a concept right now, and I don't know how it's going to impact. You know, should I speak out about this social situation? Well, our podcast can help with uh, with that. Uh, decision-making. All right, Adam, well, with that, we're going to log off for today. Any final thoughts before uh, we we pull the plug on today's episode? I just uh, want to remind people that you never have the luxury of not paying attention to trends. The world is a constantly changing place. And when you start thinking, oh, I can relax, sit back, I got this, you don't got this because the world's an ever-changing place and you have to keep up with trends all the time because your customers are moving and their needs, wants, and desires are changing every single day. You stay ahead of them and you can be really successful. You fall behind them, uh, you can end up like Chapek. <laughs> Remember, the only thing constant is change. It is change. Absolutely. Right, Adam, thank you for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.